Okay, so I hope you found it. It's one of those passages that you might sort of be able to picture it as, as I read it. Okay, so we're starting from chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously slain Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who, was, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, who was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said. 
and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you've been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You'll be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Then the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Get rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Ah, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Morning, everyone. Uh, As Ben said, uh, my name's Oliver, and I have the immense privilege of bringing God's word before us today. Uh, This is the last sermon in the book of Acts for a while, I think, uh, until we do it next. And it is a big passage, so uh, if you do have a Bible in front of you, please keep it open. Now, the first question I'm going to ask you today is, are you comfortable in the gospel? And how would you recognise that you're living comfortably? Now, it seems like a strange thing to ask, are you comfortable But when I say comfortable in the gospel, I mean in the sense of being a bit complacent. Now, here in Australia, we do live pretty comfortably. Described by a government website as safe, prosperous and friendly with a relaxed culture, people who fall under the banner of Christianity 
can also have it pretty good too. We can meet here in a lovely hall each week. We can meet in each other's houses throughout the week. And we can talk to our workmates and classmates about the gospel with no fear of any severe persecution. Yet in this passage today, displayed by the people from Asia, specifically the Jews, and the Roman authority, we see that they are uncomfortable with the message of the gospel. And we also see how Paul will continue to preach even when persecution is on his doorstep. Uh, With this in mind, uh, let's kick off today and let me pray to start. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we read your word today, be at work in us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Now, last week, Adam took us through the section before this one, describing how Paul was resolutely going to Jerusalem. Despite the repeated warnings of the people of Tyre, Agabus the prophet, and Philip the evangelist, Paul continued on his way to Jerusalem, and they prayed that the Lord's will be done. Now, when they get to Jerusalem, they don't actually encounter persecution right away. You have a look at this from verse 17. Now, from here, Paul reports all that has been done among the Gentiles so far. And this is joyous news for Paul, but it comes with a warning. Many of the Jews who have been saved, that's good, but many have misunderstood Paul, and they feel very threatened by what he's saying. They are under the impression that Paul, because he has invited Gentiles into God's kingdom, they know that he no longer considers that the Jewish law is important, and specifically, the law of Moses. Now, Paul actually takes part in a vow, which we see at the end of chapter 21, uh, along with four other men. And he goes up to the temple to show when this would end. Now, if you have a look back in your Bibles, throughout the book of Acts, we can see that Paul is consistently in mess. Whether he's uh, from... Proclaiming the gospel, he gets into trouble with not only the religious people, but also the governing authorities. So today, I'm not necessarily going to look at section by section, but we're going to look at three different groups of people and how they respond to Paul's message. We're going to look at the Jews, we're going to look at the Romans, and we're going to look at all of us sinners. Uh, If you're a note taker, uh, you can see on your outline uh, where we're going to be going today. Um, We're up to point one, the gospel versus religious complacency, from verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, our law, and this place. And besides... He has brought the Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. As we can see here, the Jews from the province of Asia are riling up the crowds. And Paul mentions, they mentioned three things that Paul has done. He's going against the people, the law, and the place, that being the temple. Now, throughout the book of Acts, if you have a look back in chapter 15, this is actually what they accuse Paul of again. 
This is what it says in Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are a Jew like us, they say, there is no way that you can be saved. And this is exactly what they say again. And note how they do it. What do they call the people around them? They call them fellow Israelites. This personalises the attack so people would get more angry to Paul, going against the systems that the Jews had set in place. They have developed such an insecurity with their own understanding that pure assumptions are enough to get them angry. We meet Trophimus in chapter 20, who is the assumed break and enter of the temple. Now, the only issue with Trophimus for the Jews is that he's a Gentile. Now, Gentiles weren't allowed in the same parts of the temple as the Jews. According to the Jews, on the inner courtyards was messages displayed in Greek and Latin. And this is what it said. This is a warning to any foreigner that if they pass this line, they will die. And Paul, recently taking that vow, has this assumption made of him. But we see that this persecution isn't new for Paul. Like I just mentioned in the previous section, hostility against the Gentile integration into the church has always been in Acts. Similarly, what is encountered here by Paul is also encountered by Stephen in Acts chapter 6, ultimately leading to his death, being dragged out of the city and stoned. Now, as the gates are shut and the uproar continues in Jerusalem, the news goes higher up the chain to the Romans, continuing in verse 31. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him in order that he be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing, and some another. Since the commander could not get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, and he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Now, with the whole city in uproar, Paul, in a very likely situation where he's going to die, the Roman troops come and actually save him. As Agabus, back in chapter 21, prophesied, Paul is bound with two chains, and then he's just asked what he's done. Now, it's at this point in the book of Acts where one commentator describes this sad reality. He just says, this is the final rejection of the gospel by those in Jerusalem as it goes out to the ends of the earth. From here, as we'll see in the next series in Acts we're going to do, This is the last time where Paul is in Jerusalem, ultimately on the way to Rome and ultimately to his death. The Jews have rejected the one here who was proclaiming the gospel to them. Their complacency in their own systems has uh, has created a system in which they persecute the one who declares their Messiah. And as we're going to see later on, the message that Paul proclaims is very, very clear. But still, they miss the point. 
Similarly to the Jews, the Romans who are overseeing this, as they've run down, also show some complacency for the gospel. So section two, the gospel and political complacency, following from verse 35. The violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. Jumping down to verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Note here that the Roman authorities wouldn't have been proficient in what the Jews are saying. The disconnect of the language barrier here, I think that actually means they had to take him away to actually understand what was going on. But it does take an unexpected turn. As Paul is getting dragged by a vi- away from a violent Jewish mob by Gentiles, he asks them a seemingly strange question. May I say something to you? Might be the last thing he's thinking. Now, we might not think this is a very important question, but it very truly is. It shows the Roman officials something they might not have known about Paul. Paul was someone who spoke Greek, the common language of the Roman Empire at that time. Now, Paul answers the commander stating that he's a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia. In other words, there is no doubt that Paul is a Jew, but he also is Roman in his speech. So, obliging, the Roman commander gives the clear to speak. And again, in a moment, we're going to look at his speech, but let us look at the response of the Romans in verse 24 of chapter 22. From 24. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And, halfway through verse 25, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Now, does this part of scripture sound familiar? Just as Paul is being flogged and interrogated, so too Jesus was interrogated and flogged. By the same system of authority, he undergoes the same punishment for proclaiming the gospel. Now, Paul is willing to go into Jerusalem to suffer, Yet, he points out the unlawful nature about what they're about to do. Now, I don't know if anyone's an expert on Roman law, but this is what a commentator states. The Romans did have a law that if any magistrate did chastise or condemn a free man of Rome without hearing him speak for himself and deliberating upon the whole case, he should be liable to the sentence of the people The Romans here are calling for their own punishments to be determined by the angry Jews outside if they continue on with what they're doing. But they refrain, fearful of what could happen if they continue. And Paul says that he is actually a Roman citizen, so they should stop. Now we've noted in the last two sections the inability of both the Jews and the Romans to understand why Paul is preaching But this next section, I think, is more for us. As we encounter the gospel, how do we respond to it? So, we start from section three, the gospel versus sinners. 
Now we turn to what I think is the centre of our passage today. After given permission to speak, he hushes the crowds with his hands. Now consider this mob. They've almost just killed Paul. They've almost killed him on the steps. Yet Paul signals with his hands and they stop. From verse 1 of 22. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born of Tarsus and Sicilia. I have brought up, I, but, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council could testify. I even obtained letters from their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, the Jews here in this situation wouldn't have expected Paul to declare this in Aramaic. Earlier on, we learned that the Jews from the province of Asia wanted to persecute him because he was against three things, but specifically, he was against the people and the men of Israel. So he was against them. So Paul, by declaring this, realises and shows them that he's actually one of them. Now, trained by a man called Gamaliel in verse 3, he describes himself as zealous. Uh, check out Philippians chapter 3 if you want to see Paul's credentials. Now, some of you might know, I'm a bit of a sports fan. Uh, it's probably not a good time to do this analogy, actually, but we're going to do it. One of the all-time things that would do would be meet your favourite sports star. For example, let's take Steve Smith. Not that the Australians are doing well at the moment. But not only imagine meeting Steve Smith, uh, but training under Steve Smith for four years. Now, you could study the ins and outs of how he plays, how he moves, and what he thinks about the game of cricket. Ultimately, the way in which you think about sport and the way in which you would play the sport would be a mirror of what Steve Smith does. If you were to go and to train under anyone under the law and to show how to live zealously, the rabbi, Gamaliel, who was undoubtedly one of the highest in Jerusalem, the PhD equivalent of a Pharisee, this was the guy to do it under. So Paul, on the back of his thorough teaching, is the one who actually persecutes the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, and leads right to their death because of this zeal. If you haven't flicked back in your Bibles to the Acts chapter 9, that shows the Paul's Paul story of conversion. And he uses this to prove his case about why the Jews should listen to him. And even the high priest and the council agree with him. From here, Paul has provided all the backing and the evidence to say that he's one of them and he might, they must listen to him. So, continuing in verse 6. About noon, I came near Damascus. Suddenly, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Now walking on his way to Damascus to persecute persecute those who were establishing the church, the one who is their saviour appears to him and actually blocks the way. He falls to the ground and recognises that it is the Lord who is calling out to him. Truly his pride has been put to death about what he was going to do. The way in which Paul comes before the Lord is actually eerily similar of that of John chapter 9. If we go over to John chapter 9, verse 39, where Jesus has just healed a blind man with some mud and in the pool of Siloam. And afterwards, he says, it says, Jesus said, I have come into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Paul, just like the other Pharisees of the time, recognised themselves as the ones with the spiritual sight. But Christ stops them here and says that you guys are actually the ones that are blind. Those who cannot see, cannot see Christ and his light, even in the darkness. So just as Paul is coming to Damascus here with spiritual blindness to the truth of the gospel, he is now physically blind. As he is led into Damascus, just as the Romans and the Jews had had him bound, so too he is now bound by his sight. He is visually bound by those who are with him. And to be unbound, he has to go to a Jew. He is commanded to go to a devout observer of the law. So following from verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, Ananias, the respected member of the Jewish community, is the one who has given Paul sight back. And from this point on, in Acts chapter 9, it is the springboard for Paul's mission, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And as we have seen, Paul never stays in one place because of this persecution. Now, further on in chapter 22, we're not going to jump into it, but we actually see that Christ, the Lord himself, after Paul has been converted, says to Paul, leave Jerusalem. Now, as we've seen, Paul has pretty good credentials to preach to the Jews, but especially for the fear of his safety, Christ tells him to go on to preach to the Gentiles. And, evidently, further on in our passage, we see that Paul then has to address the crowd. So, in chapter 22, 
verse 21. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid him of the earth. He is not fit to live. Now, similarities between the Paul here and the martyr Stephen are still going. Having the phrase, rid him of the earth, is a pretty strong phrase. Now, another translation says that they wanted to wipe the man from the earth. Jews wanted this man, Paul, completely gone. And why do they want him gone? Have a look at verse 21. Is it because Paul met Jesus? No. Is it because the Jews themselves haven't met Jesus? No. Is it because he was bound by light, just as they had just tied him up? No. It was the key line of verse 21. Go, I will send you to the Gentiles. Paul has just retold the story of his salvation, how he has met the one who, proclaimed, who the prophets proclaimed, the one who has done wondrous miracles among the Jews, the one who has proclaimed himself to be the sent one for an unworthy people. But the response is met with anger and frustration. And, as we see in Acts 23, the title is, The Jews Plot to Kill Paul. Just as they did for the one that Paul met on the road. So, some implications. Where does the rubber hit the road for us? We have seen both the Jewish response to Paul proclaiming his saving faith, and likewise the Romans, who, in fear of the Jews, are unable to hold up their own requirements for their citizens. Because of their pride within their own systems, whether that's religion or politics, they could not see the truth of the gospel message that Paul had come to declare. So, a question that we could consider is, does our pride hinder our trust in Christ? Now, we started with, are you comfortable in the gospel? But as we have seen, and especially throughout this series in Acts, the gospel is not comfortable. Paul, who was earnestly on the road to Jerusalem, eventually to his death, knew that the gospel would divide. He knew that suffering was around the corner. Yet, he still continues to tell of his story of how he was saved. And it is not received well. By the Jews who knew their Messiah... They believed some of what Paul said, but they just could not see it because they were blind. So, where does our own pride hinder our trust in Christ? It might be the case here that some people today don't know Christ as their Lord and Saviour. But I urge you, what in your life is halting you to come to understand who Jesus is and what he has done? And feel free to come chat to me afterwards. But for those among us that do know Jesus, pride can also be an issue that we can face. Are we confident in our church attendance to save us? Are we confident that we can contribute to our salvation because of our service for church or our good works? Another point uh, that we can think about is the gospel has hard truths. Now, the gospel is very hard on its truth, as we have seen, and many things about the gospel truths, our hearts just don't like. 
The hard truth of the gospel for the Jews was that it did go to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Yet they could not recognise the plan of God because of their own pride. They were truly blinded. All of us within our hearts have this idea of a deal-breaker because of our sin. And as we reflect on these questions I'm about to ask, they also reflect to me. What things of my heart go against the truths of the gospel? As many of you know, I finish uni, hopefully soon. Um, and how can I use that degree to give God glory? Will I use the money that I earn from a full-time job in the right way? Do we pursue money for the success and a comfortable life or do we use it for God's service? Can we use our families or partners to make excuses for living for Christ? Do we seek the things of this world as a type of rejection to the truth of the gospel? The truth of Christ does not adhere to worldly systems. Hence, we who hold to these truths will not fit in either. The truth of Christ does not adhere with worldly systems. Hence, we who hold to these truths will not fit in either. May we be people who adhere to the truth of Christ's death and resurrection and proclaim this until he returns. Let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul as he followed and served Christ. May we be people who recognise our own pride, consider the hard truths of the gospel and believe in your son Jesus, holding firm to the faithful message that has been proclaimed. Amen.